Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Kreppi, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. And we'll be going over, obviously, the big matchup that was between Oregon and UCLA and recap that one uh, at length. And we will also take an early look at this week's matchup in Berkeley and a chat with Cal beat reporter Jim McGill of Bear Insider and get a early look at the Golden Bears who are obviously off to a uh, rough start so far this season on a three-game losing streak right now. But uh, again, we'll get into that more with Jim coming up. But first, taking a look at the 45-30 win that was for Oregon, a signature win for Dan Lanning and his program early in his tenure, certainly the biggest win of the season, biggest win for Lanning's early career, biggest win for Bo Nix in his time at Oregon. You name it, uh, for any of the new players in particular, and anybody wasn't part of the Ohio State win last season, uh, this is the biggest win of their careers uh, so far. A really big performance. Offensively, hard to find almost anything that the offense didn't do really well. I mean, really well. Once again, no sacks allowed. So we knew going into the game, like we talked about last week to, to kind of incorporate some of the talking points we had areas we were looking forward to seeing, uh, addressing questions we had, etc. I think you got a lot of answers in those areas from Oregon's offense that give you that much more confidence that this is an elite offense this season, that this is a balanced offense an efficient offense, but elite in total production, elite in scoring. And particularly in this league. Now, ultimately, against you know the very best competition, hey, you're not going to know until you get to the postseason, quite honestly. You're not. Because I'm not sure there is a Pac-12 defense out there that is really going to pose that much of a massive matchup. Not saying they're not going to be tested at all. Oregon's going to have to pass some tests along the way. Look, Cal's not a great team this year. They are well coached on defense. Utah has a good defense, always has a good defense. Oregon State has been playing much better on defense this season. But by the time Oregon goes to play some of these teams, particularly later in November, after the next couple of weeks, after Cal, after Colorado, we're not even going <laughs> to... Boy, next week's podcast with Colorado is going to be an interesting one. But uh, to some of the others, some of the other teams, as I say, we'll see when they actually go to play them where does Washington's scoring defense stand by the time Oregon gets around to playing them? You know, will Washington State continue to lead the league in scoring defense? A team that Oregon also put a ton of points up on? Will Utah be improved and will they be leading the league by that time? You know it's going to be a tougher matchup and they have the best corner in the league. So they might be the most talented overall group that Oregon will play defensively. And maybe the best coach, maybe. But Cal is certainly in the conversation. But against what was, heading into the game, the best total defense in the league, Oregon was unstoppable. With 545 yards and 262 on the ground. And a 100-yard receiver who had a 49-yard catch over the top and blew the top off the coverage. Five passing touchdowns. These are things that UCLA's defense, while it may not be the most talented from a top-end standpoint in terms of future NFL players, it had been playing well and preventing these very things from happening. It had done really well against the run. Obviously, did not fare particularly well against Ducks. It had prevented long pass plays. Did not do a particularly good job of that against Oregon's offense. Limited, particularly long pass plays. Not that Oregon hit a ton of them, but they did hit four of 20-plus, two of 30-plus. And again, the 49-yarder to Franklin, which was a absolutely spectacular throw by Bo Nix, and you know, Franklin's able to just camp underneath it and go and get an easy touchdown. One Probably going to be one of the easier ones he has, other than the pure distance of it all. The thing that's 
more, most impressive about it, beyond the actual execution of it, is that is exactly the kind of play that UCLA was preventing all season. And it came to and from a wide receiver who, going into the game, UCLA knew that's exactly the area of the field that Oregon targets Troy Franklin for those big plays. That's where he gets the lion's share of his production in between the 40s, and that's where his most explosive plays come from. His most explosive plays don't come on P and 10 from the 25. And his most production doesn't come inside the 30 or inside the red zone. And he also had production there too. No, he's an explosive receiver who can blow the top off, and he did against a team and a defense who is built to keep the top on the defense. That's what's impressive, is when you're able to rely on, basically, if you go into a game and say, defensively, what's the game plan? All right, take away that primary weapon. Did UCLA do that at all? The answer was no. In any facet, in any phase. Hey, who's the lead running back? Bucky Irving. Okay. Obviously, this has been a pretty good run defense. Goal is to hold them to as little as possible. Well, Bucky averages 5.6 a carry and tops 100 yards for the first time this season. Noah Whittington tops six yards a carry. Bo Nix and his mobility tops six yards a carry. And he had two short runs on four downs. Can you imagine if those weren't part of the equation? Otherwise, he had six carries for 47 yards outside of the two fourth down runs. I mean, that's only eight yards a carry from the quarterback. Heck, Sean Dollars got in for a couple of runs, and he also had two carries for 27 yards. I mean, they absolutely carved up what was on paper heading into the game, the best run defense in the league other than their own. And believe me, we'll get to Oregon's defense. We're going to talk about the offense because put up 45 points and was literally unstoppable. Statistically speaking, statistically, I'm not going to begin to compare UCLA or UCLA's defense to the caliber of defenses he played in the SEC. Let's not get carried away. But statistically speaking, by way of accuracy, 22 of 28, and obviously the last pass didn't really count. But 22 of 28, five touchdowns. So really, he completed north of 80% of his passes with a efficiency rating of over 220. That was statistically the best performance of Bo Nix's career given the overall caliber of opponent in all of his prior meetings against top 10 teams in which he was 2-9 and nine entering the game and 0-1 this season obviously with Georgia. That was far and away Nix's best game against a top 10 opponent. I mean, it's not even close. Now, did he have bigger wins during his Auburn career? Yes. I mean, you have to be fair. You know, this is a very big win for Oregon in the moment. Absolutely. But beating this UCLA team, who may go on to have an 11-1 regular season, or may go on to stumble. Because I think Oregon's offense showed exactly how vulnerable some of the defense is for UCLA. And it was probably masking some of those deficiencies along the way in the first half of the season. Now everybody's going to know exactly how vulnerable they are everywhere. But okay. But this is not winning at LSU, which Auburn hadn't done since 1999. This is not beating Alabama. So Knicks had bigger wins and bigger games in his Auburn career. But this was his best statistical performance by a wide margin. And it left many in the national television audience, and we haven't gotten the rating just yet as of Monday afternoon, but we'll get it at some point, wondering, who is this Bonex? And where did he come from? And how is he doing this at Oregon against a top 10 opponent? All right, maybe not you know, loaded with five and six day one and day two NFL draft picks, but nevertheless talented. How is he doing this 
when this was not there at times at Auburn. Now, there's a combination of factors, and he said after the game, it's myriad things. It's scheme. It's weapons around him. It's protection. It's his own growth and development. It's any number of things. Caliber of opponent and defense and how big the windows are and how much time you have. And you can go on and on and on and on and on. Bottom line, to me, two of the things that accentuated and pointed out exactly how good Nix is. Because for the for those who are going to naysay and continue to point out, obviously he had padded a lot of his stats the prior five weeks against some really weak pass defense. you got to call what it is. Which is why I didn't get carried away here or in writing or in any other capacity about it. Because for as good as it was, it was against really bad defenses. Particularly pass defenses from Stanford, from Arizona, from whoever. Eastern Washington. BYU even. Now the Washington State one, that's going to be an interesting one. But everybody else the last five weeks had been, let's say, really pretty bad. What shows to me and underscores to me exactly how far along Nix is and to where you're not just going to naysay and say, well, caveat it here, caveat it there, max protection, simple one reads, uh, you name it, was one, they didn't max protect to that level, to that volume in this game at all. They did at times, but not grotesquely by any stretch of the imagination and on the third and 12 broken play that he finds Bucky Irving down the sideline and on the fourth and four that he connected with Irving down the sideline for the final touchdown there was no running back in pass pro obviously Irving went out on both plays they were effectively in empty. So on obvious passing downs, both of which were pretty important, particularly the early one to, to Irving, he was on his own. On the fourth down, the second fourth down conversion in particular, because the first one, it's under center, okay, just QB sneak and fine. Second one, he drops back in gun and goes outside, and he is all alone out there with multiple defenders who could have very easily brought him down in what was a two-score game inside Oregon territory if UCLA gets the ball, and it wasn't like Oregon's defense was getting any stops either. A two-score game, UCLA ball inside the 40, changes everything. He came up big on the ground. He came up big in the air. He didn't put the ball in jeopardy at all. Connected on a bomb, connected on a really a great throw and a spectacular catch to Franklin against Jalen Davies down the sideline. The touchdown to Ferguson was a great play design. You name it. Knicks had a field day. Irving had a big day on the ground. Again, first 100-yard rusher this season for the Ducks. Franklin, huge day. Huge day. Obviously, the tight ends had a massive role in everything. That was, offensively speaking, nothing short of a spectacular performance. And not just by end results. Go back and Going back and watching it Sunday night and reviewing some of the plays and the design and the 12 personnel, one back, two tight end, for those who are less acquainted with some of the vernacular, with uh, unbalanced formation, where it's not just two tight ends to the strong side uh, or two tight ends on the one side, therefore the strong side, uh, into the boundary. It's a couple of receivers too. And the running back lined up on that side of Knicks. So you've got five eligible players, all to, in in one of the cases, left side of the quarterback. That's, yeah, Oregon had run it before. But they ran it to extremes with extreme proficiency and efficiency against UCLA. Like it was downright alarming if you're UCLA. If you're a UCLA fan watching that and going back through it, you have to be really concerned about your defense. Not just because 45 points in the yards, because there were things that Oregon 
had shown, as Chip Kelly even said, hey, no, nothing we were surprised for. We were prepared for everything. Well, there were a couple of wrinkles. There were. There were. And a couple of things that were truly new. There were. But, grand scheme of things, particularly even if you had been totally caught flat-footed, which they weren't, Oregon had kept running it over and over and over again. And UCLA had no answers. Those are things for their defense to worry about going forward. And frankly, for Oregon fans to be pulling for the Bruins to actually sort out and figure out between now and the end of the season because this is going to be probably one of, if not the, best win that Oregon has. So they want UCLA to keep on winning from now on. Whether that means a rematch in Vegas or not, that's you know for several weeks from now. Defensively. So many of the things we talked about going into the game. Hey, here's a question. Strength on strength. Well, the strength on strength matchup, you got to give credit where it's due. Zach Charbonnet played very well. 20 carries for a buck 51. I know some of it was a little bit, not exactly garbage time, but you know enough kind of in hand-ish. They did a good job, relatively speaking, containing Dorian Thompson-Robinson. They did. You know, If you take off the 10-yard run that he had, seven carries for 28 yards, you're going to take that. You're going to take it. Yeah, it's 8 for 38, but you're going to take it. No sacks. All right, hey, you know, you wish, you hope. Yeah, there were a couple of opportunities. I'm not saying there weren't missed opportunities, but he's a tough guy to get down, a tough guy to catch up to. You'd sign up for 8 for 38 any day of the week in terms of Thompson Robinson's running. Charbonnet going for 20 for 151 and a touchdown. Again, I don't care about how some of the production came late or not. That's something that this defense had, you know, obviously done better against. So in a battle of strength on strength, credit where it's due, UCLA did execute and did get some production on the ground. And Charbonnet, yes, two of the carries accounted for 60 of those yards. So it's 18 for 91. Yes, a bit less impressive in that context, but nevertheless, and if you take off another run of 15 yards, you know, yeah. So in the gross total, it comes off a certain way and certainly looks a probably a bit more impressive than it actually felt along the way, in part because of also how Oregon was controlling the game. But regardless, something that we talked about going into the game, how would it go? Well, pretty much went UCLA's way there insofar as it could. Certainly not according to plan for Oregon. The bigger issue to me is third down, which 6 of 12, when you knew it was an issue, you know, not the 5 of 12 would have been massive difference, but would have helped. Inside the numbers, you could take a glass half full or half empty. You're going to know a lot more the next couple of weeks against vastly inferior opponents. If they don't improve dramatically on third down defense the next couple of weeks, then you've got... Then, then there's real alarm bells because these are the weeks to pad the numbers. But out of the 6-for-12 for UCLA on third down, 4-for-4 four four on third and 4 or less, 2-for-8, third and 5 or more. Now, the downside of that was, yeah, UCLA then also converted a couple of fourth downs after they made really nice stops on third down, then they followed it up and converted anyway. And that those are the backbreakers. Those are the ones that you just can't have. You just can't. If you're going to actually get off the field and finally execute and finally come up with the play, you feel a lot better without the fourth down conversions, obviously. So that was an area. Pass rush, and, you know, if you're going to take it from the standpoint of the coaching staff, which is the standards, the standard, and every coaching staff is going to say that, well, then, you know, no matter who the quarterback is, hard to bring down, got to contain, got to spy, got to do this, got to do that. Hey, you didn't, you didn't get a sack. And they've not been terribly productive in that realm so far. Now, Cal may offer a very different kind of opportunity for that with a much more traditional pocket passer and a very bad offensive line that has lost the starter for the season and is among the worst in the conference and the country in sacks allowed. But against the opponent you just had, couldn't quite get home. Big plays. All right, they kept the lid on. That part's solid. Matchup with Jake Bobo, most all of his production came very late. So, relatively speaking, yeah, not bad. 
not bad, even though it ends up at 30 points, even though you didn't necessarily get a stop to get off the field and force a punt. The biggest issue, though, obviously, was linebackers and pass coverage, and that's an issue that has been there all season. Really, it even dates back prior to landing and his staff getting here. And could very well come up again this week because Jade Knott, former Ducks commit, is having a very nice season for Cal, one of the few bright spots for them offensively. And he is doing exactly the kind of things as a running back, not just as a runner, but also as a weapon out of the backfield, that Oregon has had a brutal time stopping. So for all the things that they did well, particularly offensively, hey, to their credit, for all the things they had some progress and some success on defensively, All right, maybe signs of progress for all the areas that are still weaknesses. This is a week to where they can possibly look to improve and show signs of that progress and improvement. If they don't show it this week of all weeks, there's major concern because there is no easy, I mean, there's no way to decorate this week as anything more than whether you look at it as formerly a division game or just conference game, whatever. This is a game that Oregon is a vastly superior team. They are just plain better than Cal. Now, Cal's going to be well coached, particularly defensively. They may throw a couple things at him. Now they're at the point in the season that, you know, you are absolutely the hunted. You always were, but now you absolutely are. A team like Cal will make a will totally make its season with an opportunity to beat a top team like Oregon. And that's going to be that way the rest of the way. Whether the team's in the race, not in the race, already bowl eligible, not bowl eligible, competing for the conference or not, or whatever. Every week from here on out, Oregon is going to get everybody's best shot, as if they weren't before. Well, now, that's going to be that way. And look, just look at it from the most basic. Cal needs three wins in its last five games to be bowl eligible. And who are you? where are you finding those? Oregon, USC, Oregon State, Stanford, and UCLA. I mean, the most confident they're going to feel is against Stanford. But they have to get two other wins in the other four games to be bowl eligible. Needless to say, it ain't looking great. So there are plenty of areas for this defense to begin to show signs of progress. Whether or not that's legitimate signs or not, again, that'll be the caveats. That'll be the, well, it was Cal. Well, it was a team who doesn't protect well. Well, it's a quarterback who has no mobility. Well, hey, got to start somewhere. Because we're not going to read anything into any statistics put up against Colorado. That's for sure. In any statistical category. So this week for Cal and this matchup, to me, for Oregon's defense is about Showing signs of progress on third down, signs of progress on linebackers and pass coverage, showing signs of progress on pass rush. After a week that some of those very same areas showed either incremental progress or showed that they were still glaring issues. Should Oregon's run defense return to form against Cal? Yeah, theoretically. Cal's not an absolutely awful running team, but they haven't been particularly good. And again, they have an explosive player in Jay Knott. Not a great offensive line to protect either for the quarterback or open holes for him, but they have some options. And they've got some weapons at receiver. Again, I'm not going to make them more than what they are. I'm not going to oversell it. And we'll chat about it with Jim McGill, a Bear Insider here in a moment. But as I say, for the week that was, for the matchup that was, Oregon got everything it could ask for offensively and more out of Bo Nix, Kenny Dillingham, and the rest of the offense, particularly with Bucky Irving and Troy Franklin and the offensive line and you name it. That's going to be something, obviously, that in the next couple of weeks, if they continue to keep on rolling like that and avoid any major issues, injuries, or anything else, what they're doing right now offensively is to be more than celebrated. They're in the they're achieving things they haven't done in several years in terms of leading the conference and being among the top ten in the country in various different categories. Averaging over seven yards of play is elite. 
averaging the volume of points, points per possession, particularly when you account for just the times that Knicks and the starters have been in there and take out some of the final you know, blowout drives in certain games in particular. Uh, how they've manipulated tempo at different times to be either fast or slow and totally seize control of games. Big plays. It's been absolutely beyond impressive. It really has. Now they get a couple of weeks to pad those stats even more, <laughs> potentially, and set up for what could be a really, I hate the corniness of the line, but yes, a November to remember. Because depending on exactly how it shakes out elsewhere around the country, already, as you've seen, as should be the case, when you have a game on national television at that caliber and you're the biggest game of the weekend, drives the conversation, deservedly so, for individuals, for coaches, for the program. And the questions are already starting in terms of can Oregon overcome? Can they be the team? Can they be the program to overcome the albatross loss, the brutal loss, the blowout loss that nobody else has been able to overcome and reach the playoff? I'm not going to go down that path today. I'm not going to go down that path next week and maybe not even the week after <laughs> because <laughs> have we not learned enough about this before in college football? We do. It's like an annual tradition. You start posing questions to teams in late October and early November, and then two weeks later, you know various different teams you were posing all those questions about fall out. Worry about it deeper in November. We'll get into those conversations deeper in November. For now, lots to be happy about if you're a Ducks fan about the offense. Lots to still be fretting about a little bit, to say the least. On the defensive side, we'll see how those things look against Cal, and we'll chat with Jim McGill of Bear Insider about the Golden Bears and set up this week's matchup next. Well, we welcome to this week's edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast, Jim McGill, who's the uh, Cal Beat reporter for BearInsider.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at BearInsider underscore com, like BearInsider.com, just underscore instead of the dot since it is the Twitterverse. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thanks, James. Good to talk to you. Good to catch up with you as always. Uh, well, for Oregon fans who have uh, not been uh, paying super close attention to Cal until this week, uh, give kind of the overview, Jim, of how the Golden Bears have gotten to this point at three and four, where they're three and one at home. Uh, that was all in the first four games of the season. And they have now gotten in this three game losing streak, made some changes. Steve Greatwood, of course, formerly of Oregon, uh, hooking up again with Justin Wilcox uh, and joining the staff last week. But uh, while there was probably some signs of incremental progress, uh, particularly offensively last week in the loss to, to Washington, which was not a bad loss. Uh, nevertheless, this team has lost three straight and four or five uh, after what was a three and one start. And now is really up against it in terms of trying to reach bowl eligibility this season. Yeah. You know, the, the team and fans went into this season with a, a lot of high hopes because there's a lot of quality talent and depth at most positions, but there were two main things that have impacted this season. The first is the defensive line lost three starters, and fortunately for them, they have good depth. So they have guys that are solid players, but it's impacted the pass rush. You know, they, they're, they're fine in other capacities, but they're not getting to the quarterback enough. So that's part of it. But the offensive line has been the main Achilles heel. The The line was reasonably solid in both spring and fall. No major warning signs. So the, the hope, especially with two transfers in, adding depth was that the line would at least be capable enough to not hinder the offense. But unfortunately, that's not been the case. There's one exception there. I mean, they started you know, reasonably strong with the, the, uh, win over UC Davis and UNLV Notre Dame was a setback. Um, it was a winnable game. Notre Dame has a lot of talent, but they weren't playing up to their capabilities at the time Cal played them and their line really, really hindered them in that game. They made some changes after that against Arizona. They juggled some guys around, and uh, it seemed to have an immediate strong impact when they scored 49 points and gave Jade Knott room to run for 274 yards. But uh, for whatever reason, those changes didn't hold up after that. The, uh, the upset loss to, 
to Colorado was just devastating. Um, and I think it was sort of a carryover from the Washington state game. Cal was in that game up till the fourth quarter. And then the line just, uh, was like a sieve and quarterback Jack Plummer was getting pounded and that carried over to the Colorado game. He had the yips all game and, um, just was overthrowing balls, underthrowing balls. And when you're scoring 13 points against a dreadful defense like Colorado, you know, there's big problems. Um, Washington, I mean, they, they, they had no offense whatsoever in the first half came to life in the second half. They've been getting some, uh, input from Steve Greatwood, a former Oregon, great offensive line coach during the week as an offensive consultant. And that presumably helped, but they didn't have enough to, to hold off a, a pretty solid Washington team. And they've gotten themselves in a really big hole now at three and four heading into games against USC, Oregon and Oregon state. And those are going to be really tough games for them. Yeah. Uh, it, it's definitely going to be a tough, tough road to try and get to bowl eligibility um, to the, uh, with the offense being kind of just stuck in this weird gear, Jim for, for years now, and they've changed coordinators and they've, even though now this season with a different quarterback, all right, yes, transfer is in um, some weapons uh, around them, some young weapons, and we'll get to uh, Jade Knott uh, in particular and uh, and Servant uh, at receiver and, and some of the other receivers who I know one was I think Hunter was just out this past week, but sounded like after the game that uh, that Justin's hoping he'll be back. But why is it that is it just it, look? We understand that for both Cal and Stanford particularly over the last couple of years and, and things going dating back to the pandemic, but even before that, where like lines of scrimmage play was an area of probably weakness, relatively speaking in the conference, you know, where they stood, where Cal and Stanford stood on the line of scrimmage, even dating back 2018, 2019 at times, maybe a guy here or there, but ultimately that was not the areas of strength of their teams. And it was made worse by, uh, some of the issues that came up that season with player development, how many games you could have, restrictions on all sorts of things. And then what comes out the other end, you know, a couple of years later is now really thin personnel groups, uh, particularly on the defensive line for Stanford specifically, but for Cal, is is it kind of just been the recipe? Is that that's what's happened with the line of scrimmage? You talk about, yeah, they added some depth, so on the offensive side, so they're probably hoping for a little bit better. But why is it that this program just seems like no matter what they do, no matter who the quarterback is, no matter who the coordinator is, that they just can't quite get this sorted out just yet, you know, after a couple of years now of trying to figure it out offensively to be a more productive and explosive team? Well, you know, Chase Garbers was a solid quarterback, but he had his real limitations. And the hope was that Plummer would be the catalyst to get the offense to move forward because he looked so good and in spring and fall. He looked better than any quarterback that's been on campus since Jared Goff, hitting guys in stride on all kinds of different routes all over the field against a good defense. But, you know, if he doesn't have time to pass, doesn't matter how much talent he has around him, it's not going to work. And honestly, I think that the coordinator, Bill Musgrave, is not the right fit. He's trying to run a pro system. And um, I just think he's not taking advantage of the skill sets of a lot of offensive weapons this team has. And sure, it can be hard to do that if the quarterback doesn't have enough time, but there's some ways to mitigate that too, especially when defenses load the box and you've got speedy receivers with good size and good hands. Um, there's some quick hitting things that you can do that they're not having ha happen successfully for them either. But uh, you know, it's not just a few good offensive players that have been put in the mix. There's a lot of really, really good receivers and running backs there. If they have time to operate and they have a decent game plan, you'd see this offense be a whole lot different. It's better than it was last year in terms of talent when you we add Ott to the mix and you take um, Maven Anderson and J. Michael Sturdivant, who were uh, really not playing last year as new freshmen, and you add them to the mix and you add Mason Starling, who has the look of an NFL guy to him, but he, he just got knocked out of the last game after missing the first four or five games. And it, it looks like it's a long-term injury again. So they can't win. It seems they they can't catch a break. I think really the offensive line, the main problems is they had a, a, a few good experienced guys that came back, but the tackles is where they're really struggling. 
Um, they brought in a, a pretty good class of freshmen. One, Sio Ape Vatakani is the strongest guy on the team immediately as a true freshman, and he's been starting for a few games since Arizona. Um, he's been good, but uh, Ben Coleman's been forced to play out of position at, at left tackle, a critical position, and he's a very good interior lineman, but he had his limitations as an offensive tackle. And then on the other side, um, Braden Rome and and uh, transfer TJ, TJ Sessions from Montana State, those guys just have not gotten it done. And when you, you can't control the edge, you're in real trouble, honestly. And that's what's, that's what's happened with them. You mentioned Jay Knott and uh, Oregon fans, uh, those particularly who really follow the recruiting realm, uh, certainly remember him. Uh, no, he's a former Ducks commit. Okay, uh, certainly a talented player. You don't have to oversell by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so in terms of his production, it's there. Leads Cal by a wide margin uh, in rushing yards. I mean, almost four to one, I think, on the next best guy. So he's clearly going to be the primary weapon on the ground. Uh, exactly how good has he been so far uh, for those who haven't seen? And um, what are the areas that uh, he has to improve on? Because, you know, he is still a true freshman who's getting – a ton of opportunity and not just that, you know, as a, as a running back, as I mentioned, he's also, you know, a major receiver for them out of the backfield as well. So he's got that all around ability. Um, but having said that, this is still, you know, it's going to be game eight for him in his college career. This is still very, very early on. What are some of the areas that, uh, you know, he still has rooms to grow? It's hard to say. I mean, when they've given him room, he's an electric player and he, he, he picks up big chunks of yards every time he's got a little room to operate, but there have been games where, you know, the defense is getting to him in the backfield and he has no chance to go anywhere. And we saw that even with a, a great running back like Javid Best, who could take it to the house anytime when they were getting into the backfield, not even letting them get a step, you know, it's, it's hard to, to say, oh, well, he could have done this or that. I don't really see an area that um, I could say if he were able to do this a little bit better, he'd be a better running back. I mean, maybe to be able to break tackles a little bit more effectively, but he seems to be pretty good at that too. Um, I, I guess being able to make something out of nothing a little bit better because he has those nothing situations a little too often with this offensive line. Mm -hmm. And receiver, this is a, a little bit of a different mix of guys. Uh, you mentioned several names before, but uh, J. Michael Sturdivant being the leader from a, a reception standpoint, from a touchdown standpoint, and I mean, it's a difference of only a couple of yards between him and Jeremiah Hunter. I realize Hunter just missed the last game. So, um, but those two in particular, uh, what about them? But Sturdivant specifically, because he's a, a newer guy who, like I say, a lot of Ducks fans haven't seen just yet. Uh, what do they bring to the table? Uh, how will they, uh, what makes them unique in their offense? What's their kind of size and skill set that they'll be uh, bringing to the field on Saturday? They're both big guys. They're both 6'3". Um, Hunter's a little bit thicker, probably about 215. Sturdivant's, I think, about 205. Um, Sturdivant's got pure speed. He ran a 10-3-100 in the Texas State Finals last year. Um, and he's got good football speed, and he has the ability to, to break tackles too. I think Hunter's a little bit more polished in his route running and uh, – He's able to secure some really tough balls that Sturdivant has shown a little bit more ability to do um, lately this season. Sturdivant was a guy that was a work in project. Pro uh, in, uh, I'm losing the metaphor right there. He's <laughs> progress uh, last season where he had some real trouble with his hands, and I think he only had one pass go his way in limited playing time. He was also shaking a shaking a broken hand that he had too. But he has developed really quickly. Um, both those guys have the size and speed to be NFL players. And I really like Maven Anderson too. He's not quite as tall. He's more around the 6'1 um, range, but he's got a strong body. He's really fast too. He's a 10, 7, 100 guy and he runs really good routes. He's a guy that shined in this loss where he had a very difficult TD grab in the third quarter and also another 37 yard reception too. Um, those guys are a, a great trio and Mason Starling is the fourth guy where he's had injury issues this year, unfortunately, but he's, um, he's 6'4", 205 and super athletic, um, high points the ball really well, a really tough cover, but man, you know, I, I feel bad for the guy. He, he missed the, the first five games 
um, saw some time at the end of the Colorado game. He unfortunately he could have had the reception that tied the game in overtime, but didn't secure the ball when the the safety behind him came up and gave him a big hit and coughed it up, and they lost the game on that. But uh, he comes back and has a few good catches, and then goes down with another injury, and he was on crutches after the game. So I, I don't think he's going to be back real soon either. It's too bad because uh, that, that's a really good group of four, four receivers. Hopefully, like you said, um, Hunter will be back sooner than later because they, they really need him, especially with Starling back out again. Chatting with uh, Jim McGill of Bear Insider, taking an early look at this week's matchup between Oregon and Cal in Berkeley, 1230 on FS1 on Saturday. Jim, the stats to me that really stand out that are, are both characteristic and one that's uncharacteristic of this Cal defense. They're still strong against the run. That's, you know, that's exactly their bread and butter. They're still in the top 30 nationally in that, the third in the league. All right, well, that's that's kind of who you expect Cal to be. Even if you don't know all the names in the front seven, you can expect the Justin Wilcox defense to stand strong like that. And look, credit to him in that. And that we're talking about a team on a three-game losing streak, albeit not with blowouts in there, but teams are going to be leaning on the run later on, and they're not padding numbers and skewing numbers by doing it. So that's their credit. The other side of that coin is what in the world is happening with this pass defense where that's an area that, I mean, I'd be mystified. I haven't looked through every which number, but I don't think they've ever been at the bottom of the league under Justin. So what is going on where they're able to play so much to that strength and yet teams have just completely and utterly had their way passing the ball on them. And, and as you mentioned, the schedule so far, you know, the back half is where they have the strongest teams in this league. Uh, and the non-conference, yeah, there's Notre Dame in there for whatever they may or may not be this season. But the other games are UC Davis and UNLV. So what gives by way of this defense right now? Well, it's an interesting question because the pass defense is actually pretty good the majority of, of the four quarters in each game, but they have these big lapses at critical times. And that, that happened again against Washington where, you know, they were really good in the first half and pretty solid to begin the third quarter, but then guys started getting open by big margins. And there are lapses in a bunch of the games so far that I don't know how to account for it. This last game, part of it might've been related to the fact that Lumaja Hearns, one of their starting cornerbacks, their their best starting cornerback, missed the whole game, and he came out in the uh, second half of the Colorado game with his injury. So that that's part of the problem. But there just seems to be critical breakdowns where it's not just that guys manage to find a little window and make a good play, but the the corners seven eight yards off the receiver. And that's obviously not the way they intended to cover it. So they've got to be able to diagnose whatever those critical breakdowns are and fix those problems because they're not just getting beat left and right throughout every game. They're, they're good a lot of every game, but they just have these critical breakdowns that are killing them. Personnel-wise, obviously fans are quite familiar with Jackson Sermon, uh, even if they still think he's at Washington and forgot that he transferred. Uh, I think they, <laughs> they pretty much uh, remember at this point. Uh, and if they, had, if they don't, they'll, they'll remember it on Saturday because he'll probably be everywhere. Uh, what has he meant to this Cal defense already, you know, beyond what leading them statistically uh, in tackles? That's, that's hardly a surprise. But just what has he meant to this defense uh, so far this season? You know, it's interesting because people were thinking, well, you know, the the inside linebackers look like they were too deep at both positions already. Why do we need another transfer? Well, obviously, you're going to take the uh, the second leading returning tackler in the conference when you have a chance to get him. But he he's been a steady influence since he's come here. He's he's been consistently in the right position and put up numbers every game. The other interesting factor is that a lot of the young talent that people were really um, high on and had had big hopes for as true freshmen or redshirt freshmen from last season, they've tailed off a lot for some reason. So to have that steady presence there that consistently 
does what he needs to do and consistently puts up numbers is invaluable for them. I don't know what has happened to um, Femi Oladejo, who was an inside linebacker that did really well last year as a true freshman. Then they moved him outside. Now he hasn't played for a couple of games and they're not saying why he's not playing. Um, you, you've got a couple of other guys, Trey pastors, another one that showed a lot of promise. And um, I think there's an injury, but they're not really saying, um, Nate Ruchina is uh, another true freshman that played really well last year. He had three interceptions as a as a linebacker who played only half the games of the season. I mean, that, that's that's huge. But um, he hasn't played a lot this year either. And when he's played, and he gave up a a critical touchdown against Davis taking the wrong gap. Um, I don't know why guys aren't making the progress that they need to make. So having having that veteran presence in there has been invaluable for them. Colin Gamble leads them in tackles for loss, and they've all come in the last uh, three games. What is it that he's either he's doing differently, or that uh, the defensive staff is asking him to do differently? Is and is he exclusively a nickel guy, or will they put him outside on occasion, or is he basically just accounting for all of this out of the slot and and bringing some stuff on blitzes, or or how is he doing this so far? Because six tackles for loss among the defensive backs um, that leads the pac 12 to give folks, you know, greater context of that um, DBs don't get six and seven, <laughs> six plus tackles for loss in a season. He has the most tackles for loss among pac 12 defensive backs and he's had them all in the last three games. So what is it that he's been doing? Because clearly it's very effective. Well, he, he plays almost strictly nickel. He, he came in as a corner and he played corner as a red shirt freshman, but um, they know how to put him in the right positions and he's a very smart player to, to scope out plays that he can make in the backfield. And he's a, a sure tackler for the most part. He plays a, a similar role to um, one of their previous cornerbacks that was, was good at the same thing last year. Um, I think that they're, they're seeing that that's a strength and they're playing more to it in, in recent games where he's maybe spying out certain tendencies of, of the offense where um, there's typically going to be an uncovered player that he'll be the guy that can take advantage of stopping a guy before he has a chance to make many yards or to maybe even get him in the backfield like he has. Um, I, I think that that's, that's something that it makes sense for them to continue to use him in that capacity. They may have to move him to, to corner with if Hearns continues to be out too. I mean, they have a true freshman taking his place right now who um, has, has a lot of talent, Jeremiah Irby, but you know, he's in the wrong position on occasion too. He, he had a touchdown go against him this last game by taking the wrong man. So there may be a little bit of juggling there that they have to make some decisions on the fly right now to account for some injuries at, at a lot of different positions. Lastly, Jim, uh, what is the area that you'd say, and again, like, I mean, I'm not asking you to speak for the program's perspective exactly, but what do you think it is that, I mean, you've been obviously been covering them for a long time, that that has Justin and the staff most um, frustrated, flummoxed, you name it right now, because is it just offensive or and offensive line issues? Is it, I mean, this is a team who's plus eight in turnover margin and is still a losing team. That's, that's hard to do. They feel good about every single position group about one. And that one position group has really derailed this whole season. That's, that's very unusual. Usually you have um, issues at multiple positions that you can point to. I mean, you could look at the defensive line and say they, they, they needed those starters back to get more pass pressure, but they can work around it. They can scheme around it. They can't scheme around offensive line deficiencies. They've got some good young guys. I mentioned one freshman that's starting, Siwapi Vatakani, and they've got a couple more that were highly touted with a lot of good offers, USC, Washington, Oregon offers that um, – aren't quite ready to play yet. And they could turn around the offensive line next year too. There's always a portal, but man, that, that group it's, it's not opening holes for the running game. It's not giving um, plumber time to throw the ball for the passing game. You can't score. You can't win. That's, that's as simple as that. They could score if the quarterback had time and there were a little bit more holes for the running backs. Yeah. And, and I say this, it, it, sometimes it is that, that, that simplistic and, and, that's got to be, I would imagine, yeah, that's got to be some of the most frustrating, cause especially where when you're getting the ball back. I mean, you look at teams who are, you know, have as many uh, 
takeaways as Cal does and, and so few giveaways. And again, credit to him and mainly credit to Plummer in that when you're going to hit that much, the fact that they haven't lost the ball that much, either by forcing into interceptions or by getting the ball knocked free, that's a credit to the quarterback because there are plenty of teams who are going to be taking that many sacks who are going to be the ball is going to be in the you know going the other direction uh, a heck of a lot more. So that's a credit to him. But again, you look at the turnover margin. There's only a couple of teams who are anywhere near where Cal is in terms of positive turnover margin who have losing records, and they're mostly three and four. The only one who's really behind is Nevada, and that's a first-year uh, coach and obviously a former working coach in Ken Wilson over there, um, and they're in a bit of a rebuild phase and they got raided in the portal and things like that. But outside of that... Well, something that doesn't show up in the stats, though, is where they're getting the turnovers. They're typically getting the turnovers fairly deep in Cal territory, so it's almost like a punt in effect. So, you know, if they're getting those turnovers in the red zone on the, the opponent's side or even on just their side of the field in general, where it's a short field for them to turn around and get a score, that's that's one thing. But they're getting almost all of them mid to deep in Cal side. So they're preventing disaster from happening, but they're not giving their offense a big, big advantage to where they can turn those into points. He is Jim McGill of Bear Insider. You can follow all his work at bearinsider.com. And that's basically where you can follow him on Twitter is just at Bear Insiders, make it like .com, but throw in a underscore rather than a period because, again, Twitter doesn't like, uh, you know, doesn't like the dots. Appreciate you as always, Jim. Look forward to seeing you on Saturday in what should be. It has been, obviously, a very competitive and uh, probably tougher game than many Oregon fans uh, wish it <laughs> for be over the years, um, including last year where they, you know, win and came on. But came on Thibodeau in here no more, as they know. Um, and pass rush is a question, lo and behold. And, the, you know, I think Oregon fans obviously want to see uh, answers to that pass rush against an offensive line struggling and are probably going to be freaking out uh, after Saturday night if they don't see more production. And conversely, uh, Cal fans, if they want to see better pass protection, this is, the believe it or not, the kind of team that, you know, might actually make you feel pretty good regardless of outcome, uh, make, make you feel good by way of pass protection. If you can actually, you know, keep Plummer upright against a good team who is struggling to get pass rush. Uh, so really this is a, this is a data point both ways, put the outcome and the, you know, the score part aside. This is something where Oregon struggling here, Cal struggling here, who comes out better of it on the line of scrimmage on that one direction alone is going to feel better about themselves, regardless of what the score is uh, after Saturday night's game. Yeah. I mean, we think we know what's going to happen, but chalk it up to another, you never know. Yes. Yeah. As we, as, uh, as you and I were two of the only people in, uh, in Cal Memorial stadium in 2020 during that game. Uh, I don't think either one of us saw, saw that one going the way it did. So uh, certainly uh, very, very much true. Appreciate Jim McGill of Bear Insider. Uh, as always. So uh, with that, uh, we appreciate you for listening. Appreciate you for checking in. And uh, for those who don't already subscribe to the podcast, certainly make sure to do so. Uh, Give us a like, a follow, the five-star reviews, all that stuff to help uh, so that more people can check us out as well. We will see you next week to recap the Oregon and Cal game and set you up for Oregon and Colorado.